Okay, so tonight's going to be rather technical because uh, we're, we're just basically going to deal today with defining faith, what faith is from the biblical perspective. And then once we get past these three verses, then the rest of the chapter will go relatively quickly because it just basically gives examples of the different ways that they were expressed through the faith, the lives of the patriarchs. So uh, it is my hope that after tonight, three more sessions will be done with the book of Hebrews. Uh, and um, and then, well, then we'll, then, then we'll go from there. Okay, so I'm going to go right to the notes. And uh, we've talked about what the Hebrew Christians were facing. Um, and I have found this to be true in my life, sometimes it's not so much the fear of loss, but the intimidation factor that strikes down even the strongest Christians. Well, we, I think we all face intimidation when we find ourselves in a position where we have the opportunity to share the gospel, right? I think some are more open to intimidation for those occasions than others. But we all face uh, times when uh, intimidation strikes us and causes us to back away. So we must understand that behind all the wickedness in this world lies an entity that is not so interested in dispossessing God's people of all dispensations of their possessions and interpersonal relationships, but rather to intimidate them to a place where they take their lights and place them under a bushel. So, uh, you know, I've been doing, I've been, uh, doing a restudy I spent probably the last year, year and a half, doing deep study in different Old Testament books. I covered Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, and the last one that I did was, what was it? I think, it, I think maybe it was Joel. And uh, I said, you know what, I need to spend a little time in the New Testament, so I started doing a, another deep study and re-exposition of the Gospel of Matthew. And right now I'm kind of in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and um, I, I came to understand when Christ is talking about you are, the, you, you are salt and the light of the world, that it's so important to really grasp the cultural content of what is being said there. <coughs> and so and so the analogy that Christ makes there about the salt, as I said, in a, I put it on Facebook. I don't know if anybody's paid attention to it, but we have to understand the type of salt that was used at that time. So when we think of salt, we think of, you know, the little girl with the umbrella sprinkling behind her back, which was pure salt. But that was very expensive, very expensive. And generally, only the upper classes had access to that type of salt. So it was not used for preservatives, right? Rather, what they would do is they would mine salt from the marshes around the Dead Sea, and they would use that because it contained enough sodium chloride that it could still be used as a preservative for meats and things like that. But it wasn't pure. It was mixed with impurities. Uh, the problem is, is when that salt got wet, then all of the moisture, all of the moisture would sap the sodium chloride out and all you'd be left with is the impurities. 
which was then good for nothing but to be used for dirt. Right? And so Christ is actually, he's talking to believers in that, right? And that, that's kind of like what we are. We are salt, but we're salt that still contains impurities in it. And so, and so we, have to, we have to be careful because, because sin is like the water to the salt. It washes out the sodium chloride and all you're left with is the impurities. So we have to be careful for that. And so uh, that's what the adversary is up to through, through intimidation. So there are, there are three avenues through which we are subject to temptation, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they all conspire against us uh, so that we compromise and, in essence, we take our, our salt becomes uh, flavorless, our lights get hidden under a bushel. So, uh, and so the plan was with the early Hebrew Christians, is this is what they were up against. They were in a real spiritual battle, and, and they were, uh, some of them were beginning to draw back. The author, therefore, enjoins them to keep going. Don't look back and keep growing. And so, too, it is with us. Intimidation is the adversary's most effective weapon. You must understand, believer, that all of the cosmos is aligned against you. The meaning of the word world, right? So, the cosmos is, uh, I'm sure you guys know, the cosmos is not just planet Earth, but it speaks of an entire order, an entire arrangement that is aligned against God. Right. And so that is who that is what is aligned against you. And there are no there's no there's no Switzerland in this war. You're either you either belong to God or you or you're batting for the opposite team. Right. There's no in between. And so this is this is what is going on. And so we see that the, you have two uh, two references there referring to the temptation of Christ. The first one is in Luke chapter 4, verse 5, which says, Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Luke chapter 4, verse 6, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. So this was not, uh, this was, this was not hyperbole. It wasn't a lie. Those things he he has had authority to give those those uh, those kingdoms to whomever he wished. Now think of think of the way that he was tempting Christ right there. So Christ, as the Messiah, obviously, and as the second person of the Trinity, knows that eventually he is going to reign as the Messiah on the messianic kingdom. But he also knew that in order to get there, he had to go through the cross. Satan here was giving him a shortcut. I'll give you these kingdoms right now. You don't have to go through any of that. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. Right? So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. This world and our adversary use a wide variety of tactics against us, all of them rooted in intimidation. So often we fall 
through distraction, right? We get distracted by the things of this world. We fall through seduction and we fall through intimidation. Then one day, because God loves us and his purposes cannot be undone, the statement comes just like it came to David, thou art the man, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, so we, all, we all get there. Okay, what a crushing realization, what a devastating realization. It's frightening because when the moment of crystal clarity comes, we realize that all the while we thought we were doing okay with God while moving a whole universe away from him. Like we, we, uh, we don't realize, that's the thing is when you're, when you're falling away, when you're backsliding, you don't really realize you're backsliding or there's, there's a, there's a subtly a subtlety about it, right? Uh, you stop you stop praying, you stop reading the Bible, you know things like that. Uh, but then God zaps you. In my experience and estimation, this is the hardest place to come back from, and because of the psychology of being when you're in this place, right? And so when you're in this place, what are you experiencing? You're experiencing shame. You're experiencing fear. You're experiencing, how could I be so stupid? And your greatest fear is that God is going to forsake you. And I was talking with Doug earlier about uh, David's, David's cry in Psalm 51. That's one of the penitential psalms. That's the one that he penned after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. She became pregnant. And you know the, the penalty for, for adultery was death. So he was under the death penalty. And so in order to, to, to try and, and hide that, what did he do? He put Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, into the front line. So he, well, first of all, he tried to get Uriah drunk so he would go home and have relations with his wife. When that didn't work, he put him in the front line. So he, in a, in a place where the, far, the, the fighting was the fiercest so that he would be killed. Right. Uh, and so he thought he got he thought he got away with it, but he didn't. And as a result, God was gracious to him. He said, you know, you're <laughs> you're the man, uh, but you're not going to you're not going to you're not going to die because of this. But your son is. Right. The child. And so it was during that whole thing that he penned psalm 51 and in psalm 51 you know we were just discussing the 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 role of the holy spirit in the old testament saints david cries out do not take your holy spirit from me right you know you you get you get to those you get to those places i I can say without reservation you know i'm probably being more open than i usually am or maybe even should be the last 16 months have been the hardest of my life. I've been walking with Christ for 30 years, and I've been through some dark times in 30 years, but none as dark as the last 16 months. Um, my body has conspired against me. You know, my health is, is degraded. And believe it or not, when your health degrades and you have a you have a certain schedule, you have a certain expectation of what your body is going to allow you to do, and then you can't do it anymore. 
that ha then it has a psychological impact as well, right? And so um, the, psych the physical impact, the psychological impact, and then coming under demonic attack at the same time because that's when they're going to come at you when you're, when you're at your weakest, right? And uh, we often think that Satan comes at us at our weakest point. Oh, no, Satan never attacks there. He attacks at the stronghold, at your stronghold. My stronghold has always been my mind. And that's where he's been attacking me, is in my mind, right? And so literally I wake up in the middle of the night times and it still happens. My body's just vibrating from anxiety. You know, I don't know if you, you know, suffer from anxiety. I've never really had much of an issue with it until I had, you know, the problems with my heart, you know. And, and it's like, man, what's happening to me, you know? I mean... I've gone from being, you know, a guy who could endure almost anything to, to just uh, like, what's happening to me, you know? And it's, th it's those times in the middle of the night when you know that you're weak, when you know that you're, being, you're under demonic assault, the only thing that has pulled me through is faith. That's it, nothing else. At the end of the day, that's what's going to get you through the black times in your life. It's going to be your faith. It's not going to be your riches. It's not going to be your wealth. And let me tell you something. It's not even going to be your knowledge of the Bible. It's going to be your faith. And so, so I know this, you know, I'm going on and on and on here, but I'm trying to kind of paint a picture of what these Hebrew believers messianic jews what it must have been like for them because the pressure that they were under was not just a physical pressure but they were also under intense psychological and emotional pressure as well right and so that's why the author here is now going to move into a discourse of faith okay so in the notes uh, bottom of the page one having traveled through ten full chapters of hebrews and all of the major exhortations, there are more coming. This is where the author leads the Hebrew Christians in us. That the only way back from that dark place is through faith. Faith that God, in spite of our infidelity, is gracious. So, what happens? So, let's stop for a moment and examine, examine the, uh, the trajectory, the psychology, if you will, of what happens when when a person goes into dark times right so let's let's talk about prior to saving faith prior to being made alive by the holy spirit and becoming a believer in christ when dark times come into into people's lives what do they do they find they look for and find some sort of coping mechanism just so they can hang on through those dark times whether it be relationships or alcohol or drug abuse or, you know, Hare Krishna or what shopping, right? Uh, and so that always abides as a temptation for the believer because here's the thing. When we got saved, no one just pressed the clear button on us, right? All our habits and hang-ups and all of those things, they're still there with us. And so when we come into dark times, the knee-jerk reaction is to, is to go back to the coping mechanisms that we were 
employing before we came to Saving Faith. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I wasn't brought to Saving Faith until I was 30 years old. So I had a whole 30 years before me of how I used to cope with difficult times in my life. You know, uh, starting from the teenage years and, well, as a matter of fact, right up until the time, you know, that I got saved. It was some sort of anesthetic, some sort of drug or alcohol that I would use to get through hard times, right? Now, when I became, a, when I use the term, when I became a Christian, it's not like those things just went away. And it wasn't like uh, the clear button was pressed, you know, reformat the hard drive. And now next time, you know, the hard times came, uh, now I started relying on faith to get it. It, it doesn't work that way. It's a, it's, a, it's a continuum. It's a trajectory. You learn over the course of time that, at, that now at my point, you know, I'm going to be 65 years old next week that I know that the only thing that's going to get me through hard times is my faith. You know, I mean, I know the Bible fairly well. But knowing the Bible fairly well and in the middle of the night when I'm being overrun by, you know, the, you know, feelings of uh, an abiding feeling of the presence of the demonic in my room, Bible verses don't help me. It's knowing that God is with me. That there's a reason why he's walking me through this valley. So here's the thing. I've just said to you a few minutes ago that these last 16 months have been the most difficult of my life, but they've also been that 16 months where I have grown the most. Closer to him. That's faith. That's the faith that we're talking about here. Yes. And if you're a child of God, God's going to take you there. He's going to take you there. Your experience may be different than mine. It may not, may, may not be as severe or it may be less, more severe. Right? Um, but God is going to take you to that place because he's ultimate, his ultimate goal is to get the world out of you. Right? And to bring you into conformity to his son. Okay. So faith is the key. The Hebrew Christians needed to understand more fully what faith is, and thus the, on, the author launches into a discourse of faith. So we're only going to cover the first three verses in Hebrews, chapter 11 tonight. But when we get together next week, we're going to move through the rest of the chapter quite quickly. So as I said, it's kind of technical. The rest of tonight is kind of technical because we need to understand the fundamental difference between what we know as faith and, what the, and how the Bible defines faith. They're two different things completely. Okay, So let's start with a secular, looking at the secular faith. The Oxford Dictionary defines it as reliance and trust. Webster's defines it as believe, believe and trust. So here's a, a couple of examples of this kind of secular faith. I believe I have faith that when I sit on a chair, it will not collapse under me. But that is a trust and a faith that is based upon a statistical probability formed by experience. So I have faith that when I sit on that chair, it's not going to collapse under me. Why? Because I sit on that chair five days a week for a certain amount of time when I teach Latin 
and it doesn't collapse under me. So I have faith that I, if I go over to that chair and sit on it right now, it's not going to collapse under me. But that is a, a belief and a trust that's built upon experience and a statistical reality. Okay? So that is the first example. Uh, the second example. I believe and have faith that when I will wake up tomorrow, uh, that I will wake up tomorrow, right? So I believe and have faith that when I go to bed tonight, I'm going to wake up tomorrow. That is a trust and a faith that is based upon a statistical probability formed by experience. I'm 65 years old, so I've had 65 years of going to bed at night and waking up in the morning. So when I go to bed tonight, I have a trust and a faith that I will wake up tomorrow morning. Okay? All right. Uh, next one. I believe and I have faith that when I wake up tomorrow, it will be light out. Right? We all have faith and believe in that. Okay. Again, it's a trust and it's a faith that is based upon a statistical probability formed by experience. And one more. I believe and have faith that the ones I love will never hurt or abandon me. Right? Not so much in the time that we're living anymore, but uh, nonetheless, I think for most of us, it is true, right? Okay? Again, this is a trust and a faith that is based on a statistical probability formed by experience. Now, some truths about this kind of faith. Number one, all humans have this kind of faith, right? Even the animal kingdom has this kind of faith, right? So, so you see there it says Max in his tree. So I had a golden retriever, right? He was the best dog. He was the best dog, right? And, and Max knew whenever he came in out from outside, he knew that he was going to get a treat because he would go right to the cabinet and wait there to get his treat. He just knew. He just, he just knew it was going to happen. The other thing he knew is no matter where he was in the house, when he heard a bag of potato chips rustle, he came running because he knew he was going to get some potato chips. That was Max, all right? And he knew he was going to get his when when, uh, when uh, Tuesday has traditionally been the day that my wife goes grocery shopping. He always knew on Tuesday, and when she came home from grocery shopping, she was going to shower him with, you know, with dog treats. He just knew that. Again, it was a trust and a faith that is based upon a statistical probability formed by experience. Okay, so now, just for a few moments there, we're going to get a little metaphysical. The questions of the philosophers. Remember when, uh, when the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts uh, met with, the Athenian philosophers at the Arapa, at the Arapagus, Arapagate, I don't know, forget how it's pronounced. But he said to them in him, he declared to them in the statue of the unknown God, they were covering their bases. He said, in him we live and move and have our being, right? So, so the, the, the questions of life being in motion, right? These have been questions that have, have, uh, men have bantered about since the creation. Life being in motion. So why I'm introducing this is because the type of faith that we have been discussing 
does not have being in and of itself. It doesn't have real existence. Okay, so, um, so water, right? Water has real existence. It's a thing. It exists, right? Bill Cosby, you're a person. You exist. You have an essence in nature, right? Water has an essence in nature. But the kind of faith that we've just been talking about does not. Right? It doesn't have being. Right? Okay. So this type of faith does not in and of itself have being. It does not and cannot exist apart from that which does have being and essence. That of which this type of faith is but an attribute. Okay? So the type of faith that we've been talking about here only exists by virtue of the fact that you as an individual display it. You put it, you, you, you do the math in your head, you figure the statistical probabilities in your experience, and you employ trust. Same thing with animals, right? So it doesn't exist on its own. It doesn't exist as a separate entity. It exists as an attribute, an attribute of another being. Am I getting too philosophical here? Or are you following me? Following me? Okay, by the way, congratulations, Wilfredo. He graduated uh, Police Academy today. Okay, all right. It doesn't have life. Okay, this is radically different than the faith that the Bible talks about. Understanding the difference and applying this understanding will exponentially increase the closeness of your walk with God. Okay. has no being. Of course it has motion. But in order for it to be a thing, it's got to have all three. Right? Okay. Okay, so biblical faith. Now let's flip over. Now here's where we get into the text. And I just, I parse out the words here very slowly and very carefully. But as I go through each step, I assemble a definition that kind of brings all of the all the grammatical and word definitions to bear. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So the Greek word for faith there is the word persuasion. It's constructed from another Greek word which conveys the meaning and sense of reliance based upon an inward persuasion. So faith is, okay? So here it is. Now is, right? I mean, I, <laughs> I teach two Latin classes, and so I'm constantly, you know, the, the students, they just skip over the, the uh, they don't realize that, that you have to, you parse nouns, you conjugate verbs, right? And so they, when, you're, when you're dealing with Latin, when actually when you're dealing with everything, you have to conjugate being verbs, right? Because they are verbs, right? So faith is, it's a class of Greek verbs that are called being verbs. So it says it's a substance coupled with the being verb. It tells us that faith exists as a substance. So right off the bat, biblical faith has being. It is something. 
it exists apart from us. Okay? It, it's actually an attribute of God. Okay? So, here is where the difference between secular faith that we looked at and biblical faith begins to show up. Secular faith has no being in and of itself, but is an attribute of that which does have being and essence in life. Biblical faith exists as a substance, but what does substance as it is used here mean? Okay, so substance here comes from the Greek word hypostasis, which means essence, which is actually a compound word. Hupo is a Greek preposition which denotes agency. Histemi means to abide, establish, and stand. I know this is kind of confusing. Just hang with me. It'll all come together at the end. I just wanted to be very careful in parsing out this grammar because this really, we don't often understand the difference between the faith that everyone has, including the animal kingdom, and biblical faith, the faith that God has imparted to us as, as a gift of his grace. Okay, all right. It is, okay, so what does substance, as it is used here, mean? Okay, point B, it is an essence through whose agency comes the action of abiding, standing, and being established. Biblical faith has being and is the agency through which the action of abiding, standing, and being established comes. All right? This is how it is defined here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Secular faith, on the other hand, does not have being, but is an attribute of the agency of that which does have, uh, which does have being in life. Okay, you see the difference there? Okay. So Bill has confidence that when he sits on this chair, it's not going to collapse under him. Now that confidence that he, he has doesn't have being in and of itself. It exists merely as an attribute of Bill who does have essence. Everyone follow me so far? Or am I confusing you? This is really important. So if I'm confusing you, let me know because so I can keep explaining it until until it becomes clear. Uh, Go ahead. So secular faith would be saying that just because I sit in this chair, I'm not going to fall because if I take it, it collapse and it's going to fall. Yeah. You know, this is the way it's set. But that trust, that trust, yeah. it doesn't have existence apart from you. Okay. It's an attribute of you. You have existence, but that trust does not have its own existence. It exists only as an attribute of you. You follow me? Okay. So you, you follow me? Okay. So now biblical, biblical faith is different. It exists as a, as a substance and a being apart from you, apart from me, apart from everything except God because it is an attribute of God. Does everyone, you understand that? Yes. Yes, it is. Let me get to the bottom of it, and it kind of I kind of wrap it all together when I get to the bottom. I'm just trying to, 
get you guys to hang. That's okay. That's okay. That's all right. Okay. So again, biblical faith is that which has being, which has being is the agency, medium, or conduit through which an abiding or standing or establishment comes that expresses itself as hope. Right? Now what's hope? Hope is an expectation. So biblical faith, which has being, is the agency, medium, or conduit through which an abiding, standing, and establishment comes that expresses itself as an expectation. An expectation of what? Right? An expectation of what? An expectation of something to come in the future. Right? Well, we get there, right? We get, we get there here within the next verse or two, right? So that's what biblical faith is. It, it's, it exists apart from you. It exists apart from me. It exists apart from creation, okay? It exists as an attribute of God that he imparts to his sons and daughters, those that he calls to salvation. Everyone with me? Okay, all right, let's go on. So faith has substance. Furthermore, point four, biblical faith is evidentiary. What does that mean? Well, evidence, it's an outward sign, something that furnishes proof of, here we go, of things not seen. Right? So now take a look at this. And um, here is where we, we really, st the rubber starts to meet the road here. Do you find that this faith is within you? See, here is where it is. Do you have this kind of faith? Right? If you have this kind of faith, then that is proof positive of the whole unseen realm that God's word discourses to us. Right? So this is, so, so I mean, think about it for a moment. Do you trust in Christ? Do you trust in his salvation? Well, what is the basis of that trust? It's not the same as the basis of the trust on the chair, is it? You, what's that? Right. Life changes, right? Your life changes, and so something shifts. And so your trust in him is not based upon statistical probability. It's, it's strange. Because you're trusting in something you have not seen. And you trust in something that his word promises that is coming that you have not experienced. Right? And that's what gets you through when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 23 is about this life. It's not about the grave. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Right? That's what gets you through. It's because you have that faith. And that you have that faith is proof positive. It's evidence that what God has promised, he will certainly bring to bear. No. Who, who makes 
So, so I've, you know, over the course of my ministry, I've dealt with um, a lot of people who have suffered trauma, right? Um, a lot of it sexual trauma. And, you know, they ask questions. They ask me questions. Why, why would God allow this to happen to me? And it's like the perspective is wrong, right? The perspective is, and this is the way that, you know, it, 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 it is the thing that gives you the strength to get through those dark times, is that, okay, why would a sovereign God, because we know God is sovereign, there is nothing that is outside of his control. Why would he allow something like this to happen to me, right? What is the ultimate good that he's going to bring out of this? Because that's a promise of his word, right? Romans 8, 28, right? So let's turn there for a moment. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I'm going far afield here, but I'm going to draw it to back to point here in a second. Romans chapter 8. Oh, yeah. But you know what? It doesn't, when you're in that dark place and someone comes up to you and quotes that verse to you, doesn't really help that much, does it? Okay, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's what the verse says, all things. There's nothing that's excluded there. So if you're a child of God, you're going to go through hard times. And, in you, in, and when you're in those hard times and you feel weak, you will feel weak. You'll start to question whether or not God is even there or if God is judging you for something, right? But it seems like just when you're coming down to the last of it, all of a sudden your faith, that faith kicks in. And it shifts your focus from, oh, woe is me, to God is doing something here. And I, I can't see it. I don't like it. I don't like it, you know. Be honest with God. I don't like this. But I know, because I trust you, that you're going to bring something good out of this. Right? With yourself. In the dark moment when you feel yourself beginning to slip over the chasm. You know? So that kind of faith is evidence that every single promise God has made, he's going to bring to pass. Every single one. Okay. So evidence is an outward sign, something that furnishes proof of things not seen. There's some Greek stuff there, the absence of the article. The existence of that part of the universe that is beyond our scope and field of vision and comprehension is proof positive of the existence of an unseen perceived world. Biblical faith, okay, so here's where I kind of tie it all together. Biblical faith, which has being, is the agency, medium, or conduit through which an abiding standing and establishment comes that expresses itself as an expectation 
and is in and of itself the evidence and proof that there exists beyond our field of view and comprehension the unseen world that the Bible talks about. It's there. And it's waiting for us. It's there and it's waiting for us. Our problem is, is we need to, you know, we need to focus on eternity, right? We need to focus on eternity because what happens, you know, at, at some point we're all going to die, right? Unless the rapture should happen, right? And that's it. When that happens, our suffering is over. It's done, right? And so, you know, as, as I've heard other men say, we need to learn to live with eyes for eternity, right? And we have the faith, and it's, it's this type of faith now that the author goes and says, okay, I, I see, I, I get it. Biblical faith, it's, it's something real. It exists. It exists apart from me, right? It exists apart from you. It exists apart from creation. It's something that comes right from God. Right, And I think it's in the book of Galatians where it says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourself. There it is right there. It is the gift of God. Right? So God gives it to us. So now, you know, he, I kind of expanded upon what he said in just those first verses. And I'm sure that the, the Hebrew Christians here found it confusing. So what he does now in the rest of, the, of, of, uh, of Hebrews chapter 11 is he shows them what this faith looks like in the lives of people, right? He talks about Abraham, Moses, and some characters, quite frankly, that surprise us. Jephthah is one, right? Samson is another, you know? So, so what, we'll get into that. We'll cross through those all of next week. All right. So let me finish this up. Um, so biblical faith, what it does. Hebrews 11.2 says, look at that, all of that for one verse. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By it, through the agency, medium, and conduit of faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. That is one Greek word, and it's in the passive voice. They received an enablement which empowered them to do, say, things that gave them a good testimony. Through the agency, medium, and conduit of faith, the elders received an enablement which empowered them to do, say, things that gave them a good testimony. The elders that he's going to go in discourse oh, okay. over the rest of the chapter 11, right? So we'll get into that next week, and we'll, we'll go pretty quickly through chapter 11 next week. Okay, so Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand... That's that the words, the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. So by this biblical faith, we understand. To understand is a process. It involves to perceive. You have the ability of perception, to consider, to think in your way through it, to comprehend. It becomes part of your thought process that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the, word, the, the Greek word here is not cosmos, but it's the word um, that equates to ages, right? <coughs> so 
Think about the different ages of the world, right? You think of human history, you know, you think of the flood and all of that, everything that's happened, the Tower of Babel, all of those things, they were all framed by the Word of God. God decreed that, that things should work out the way they have worked out and will work out in the future. Nothing is outside of His sovereign control. Okay, by God's decree. So the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. The causative events, actions of all things, not only at the universal level, but at an individual level, that's now every little thing. Think about it. And this is the thing that, you know, when I, when I get into that type of counseling, right, with individuals who suffered some horrible trauma in their lives, that's what we have to do. We have to get down to the nitty gritty and take it all and recalibrate all that experience under the worldview of a God who's sovereign and who is in control of all things. That's the key. That's the key to liberty, right? People get locked in to these bad places, right, where they've suffered trauma, they don't know how to deal with it, so they, they just lock it up inside. It's called disassociation. But it always manifests itself. Right? Until you, what you have to do is you have to take that horror and you have to recalibrate it under, under the belief and understanding that God is sovereign. Right? So, you know, October 30th, 1921, while I was changing a, a tire for JetBlue, I had a heart attack on the ramp. Right? I've been following God hard for 30 years, hard for 30 years. Even to this day, I dedicate two to three hours a day, if not more, to Bible study, right? Why would God visit me with a heart attack, right? And then, you know, I was, and I was in the ambulance and I could feel myself beginning to slip away. And I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go. I'm just sad because I'm not going to say goodbye to my family. You know, and then I'll, next thing I knew, the guy was, you know, stay with me, stay with me. And I came back. So why would God have me go through that, right? And so I could, I had to do a lot of thinking. And, and as I reflect back on the necessary changes that had to come into my life as a result of that one event, you know, uh, one of the things was was pride. You know, I've, I had to come face to face with my pride, right? And not, I mean, physically, I've always been strong, but my pride has not been in my physical strength, but in my intellectual strength, right? Ah, but here's what I learned. My intellectual strength, be that as it may, is very much dependent upon my physical strength. Yeah, because when your body is weak, when your body weakens, it takes a toll on you emotionally and intellectually, right? And so it's like, okay, I'm seeing these things about myself that I kind of knew were there, but I didn't really want to look at them, but God is forcing me to look at them now, right? So, or I could have just said, you know, God hates me. He must be judging me for something, right? But no, it's because of faith 
in his goodness and faith in what he says. Even the bad things that happen into your, in your life, I'm going to take it and I'm going to work it for my glory and your good. That doesn't mean life is going to be, you know, a cakewalk or a bed of roses. As a matter of fact, I pretty much promise you it's not. You've probably already experienced it. It's not a cakewalk. Remember, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Right? As I've said many times before, for the believer, this life is as worse as, as bad as it gets. For the unbeliever, this life is as good as it gets. Right? Okay. Okay. So everything that happens, happens as God has ordained and directed it to happen. At all levels, from universal to personal. From the beginning to the end of days. From personal moments of triumph and elation to tragedy and sorrow. The story of history, both universal and personal, is his story. We are participants in his story. We can and do know these things at the deepest level because of biblical faith, the conduit and medium through which that which enables us to know, to understand, and to respond. That and that which flows through the conduit of faith is God's grace. And its existence in us is proof that indeed, no matter what, we are sons of God, that nothing can separate us from the love and grace of God because the connection of faith has been made by God. He's the one who has imparted this faith to us. And we access the limitless source of God's grace through the conduit of faith. All right. And so next week we will go and we'll see what this faith looks like in the lives of the patriarchs and the elders. Any questions? I know it's a lot to, you know, if you haven't been exposed to it before, it's kind of a technical definition, but um, that was the best way that I could present it so that you would understand the big difference between secular faith and biblical faith. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not over yet. You know, I'd like to say to you, I was out. Of, I'm out of those woods, you know, and I've come through that valley, but I haven't. I'm still in it. You know, and so my my prayer is, God. If you don't mind, can you take take this away from me? But if you do mind, can you give me the strength to get through it? In either case, I trust you or. Even if you want, Lord, you can take me home now. I'm okay with that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, because of, you know, the exposure that I had to the occult in my younger years, that door never really fully closed, and so I am absolutely cognizant of their, you know, trying to make things harder on me through this time you know matter of fact you know I, I asked for you guys to pray over me and that did actually bring relief for a time you know what does it say call for the elders of the church right and you prayed for me and I did get relief it, it took it down three or four notches <laughs>